0: Monsters. Madness.
1: Welcome to the monsters madness and magic podcast i'm justin joined by my co-host henry and this afternoon we have a very special guest with us the forger of the doom sword and master of death mr joe medicino joe how the hell are you
0: how are you how are you
1: doing good uh it's a pleasure to have you now um so correct me if i'm wrong on any of this stuff but you and your brother founded doom sword in 97 uh, can you take us through the early years when you were getting the band off the ground and how you met the rest of the guys?
0: It's not exactly myself and my brother. Um, it was just me. But myself, uh, me and my brother were playing in a band called Agarthi. At the time, we were playing something like uh, Symphonic, which was great from a point of view of getting experience as a band and live show. Well, I wasn't really my into more epic, heavy, classic, heavy metal kind of stuff and that's what i want in fact before that i had already played as um i was a singer in a, a heavy metal band called warhammer with um mario uh the giovanni the guy the current guitarist of the italian metal band wotton but we, we parted ways on some <laughs> like looking back <laughs> some very very uh, <laughs> minimal <laughs> discrepancy in uh Musical taste, like I don't know say I can't even remember exactly, but let's say you have a heavy metal band and someone wants epic metal in the style of war into my right. the other guys leave the band sign of that and uh, <laughs> that's, that's the level <laughs> we're talking about, but anyway, after that I went to, to I joined the garty and then a singer my brother was a singer in there and it was all like a fortuitous coincidence. Uh, really a stroke of luck, destiny, I don't know. It's a bit of a funny story. At the time I was in university in Milan and the metro station has this historical shop that unfortunately actually due to the pandemic closed for good last year in mm. Mariposa. And uh, I was mostly, I was, uh, I was in there, you know, see if, and um, I hear these two guys, uh, a little bit older than me, talking about Sir Tungle and the road. And, those are names that do not go unobserved, <laughs> unnoticed, and um, and after a while, I just couldn't help myself. I went, you know, wow, you know, I, I, you're just mentioning all my favorite bands, and there aren't really a, a whole ton of people that would be in a record shop talking about this kind of music, right? Um, and so these two fellas happen to be Sandro Butti, who is major, major Italian uh, journalist since the '80s. Uh, he, he, I mean, he's worked for Metal Hammer and Flash Magazine and you name it. Uh, he founded its own magazine called Metal Maniac, pretty cult for a while, and still goes strong on a, a website called Proud. And the other guy was Maurizio Chiarello, the owner of... So we started talking and I said, ah, I'm playing this band where I really, you know, if I had my way, I would set up a band, Warlord, Medieval Steel. And, oh, yeah. You know, just lost, <laughs> he said. He said, he, without even hearing a note, he said, you do that and i sign you to it. <laughs> <laughs> And, and we, we pu- we'll publish you on vinyl, because I was obsessed with vinylism. Well, like, pretty much that's what happened. Um, so th- at the time, I had this little pro- project, 1014 AD. The name referred to, referenced the Battle of Rontar. And we were doing, like, medieval acoustics was more of an expert than anything. We weren't we didn't relations really of it uh, It was just me and the uh, first guy who would go by uh, the pseudonym Guardian Angel. I went back to our little studio. We had this basement which was like a Guardian Angel's basement and, and we lived in there. And uh I, 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 I told him the entire story, you know. We already wanted it like this. Now we got a guy <laughs> that's gonna give us a contract. <laughs> if, if we <laughs> the the whole tape properly, you know, turn turn uh, turn metal and um, uh, and so so we did. We took some of the stuff that was medieval slash renaissance style acoustic music mm-hmm. and put it into uh, heavy metal, which is what you hear on tracks of Doom. Right. Uh, yeah. So in ten hours we produced this thing. Wow. Uh, the Doomstar demo, which was theoretically printed in one hundred and fifty. However, there was one hundred and fifty covers and about 30 tapes made because at the time you know it was manual process <laughs> 1997 right um, and for some reason um i don't know where wires got crossed but with who but a whole bunch of covers disappeared most likely thrown in the bin as and therefore i wouldn't say there's more than copies around that thing but luckily uh, we managed to get one to to Maurizio and uh, I also sent one to Enrico Paoli, owner of heart, because we we were kind of in, in, in touch. Right. The um, funny story is that uh, Enrico heard the tape and he said, "I like it a lot. I want to sign you up," which I wasn't going to do because I had a verbal agreement. I kind of sent it more for curiosity, and he said, "But I don't think you're good enough for singing." He said, "Wow." Um, and I said, uh, "Oh, okay." Maybe you're right. Maybe I can just focus on guitars and get someone else. And since we were uh, so influenced by Candlemas at the time. And uh, someone told me, oh, there's this guy. He sounds exactly like Messiah Mark- Marklin of Candlemas. Then when I heard him, he wasn't exactly a copy. It was yeah. very much individual style. But uh, that, that that is how Nykomer, the original, the, the singer on the first album, came to join Doomsday with Enrico you being I don't think you're I'm going to
1: say that's quite the claim, to claim that someone sounds like Messiah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Messiah sounds like Messiah. So he he came, he had this, this very distinctive voice, and uh, I liked it. He did kind of must vibe to some of the Doomier songs. I thought, look, let's go ahead with it, how we basically formed the first lineup of the band but we did go ahead as promised with underground symphony release the album that's
1: quite an origin story i'm a, uh you mentioned sireth <laughs> Ungle uh just real quick what are your thoughts on forever black the return
0: album Amazing. i mean i i don't know i was just short of crying when i heard yeah. the, the preview of the, the not only that but the, it's a very peculiar feeling with with bands some bands like sireth Ungle, okay because it's not just the the music; it's the whole atmosphere that goes with the band, right? And so, I'm very, very big into visual, and uh, I am, or I, I'm, I tried to be a, a visual artist myself. And um, you know, Michael Whelan and again with Elric on the cover of it just. Yes. Uh, and, and you know, I like to hold the vinyl in my hands and listen to the music by staring at the picture. I just believe that you know if. if if a record is a masterpiece, then it will be the perfect musical to represent the cover. Yes. And, uh, Sir Thungle had this thing of Michael Whelan's Elric paintings with their music, which is this perfect combination. It's like um, Frazetta's covers to Conan Books, you know? Yes, it's yep. Nuclear. And when I heard it, oh my God, I have, I have no words. The painting <laughs> itself was a project that Michael Whelan had suspended since 2012 and um so it did have you feel that it was not something that was just made yesterday for the album right plus i'm a big huge massive fan of uh, moorcock Elric material in general so I don't, there's no classifying this thing right and and I, I i do believe that there are perfect combinations in arts such as uh, michael whelan's covers with Sir uncle's music um, you could say Robert Howard's books with uh, Rosetta's artwork, or like for me, other examples are Ken Kelly, both with Anwar and uh, Rainbow. I thought Rainbow Rising and and Ken Kelly's cover. You know, perfect representation. Um, and I'm and I'm you know eager to see more of these perfect combinations being born. You know, I thought. For example, I wasn't familiar with Adam Burke, the artist that painted on a champion cover, mm. but that was also pretty on point when it comes to musically representing the uh, the, the, the cover. Yep. Or, or for example, I uh, remember uh, Eric Larnois for the, well, reading majority of uh, Black Dragon releases, but especially <clears throat> Open the Gates, The Deluge Face on Manila Road. Amazing. Uh, those those albums you know, where you're a kid you hold them in your hands they're just transported it does not exist anywhere in yes
1: sir it's almost the same thing that we talk about here a lot with um old vhs movie covers like horror movies you don't want to be you don't want to rent a movie and be cheated by the cover you know it has to be a representation <laughs> of what's inside and that's that makes a great movie and a great metal album i couldn't agree more though
0: yeah and the, and the thing is um I think I would have felt like that a lot about books with Rosetta covers <laughs> not all of them have you know the quality of uh, content that Howard and stuff yeah <laughs> but I am very culpable of having bought many an album because of the
1: yeah, it'll get you every time it's a It's a great marketing type
0: yeah oh absolutely and and for me. It's even like a songwriting technique. A majority of the times I would elect a painting or an image as the inspiration for some song, and I would start from there. And there's even, I've even got like a, a method that you could nearly describe as scientific to go about describing in music um, the a, an image. Since, you know, both like in music you have, uh, in, in visual arts you have warm and Cool colors and that they could be represent warm and cool music, both in terms of major or minor, piece, uh, and and are the, the notes are they low or are they high pitch, and and you know like if it, just look there at at the that Death dealer. There's a great deal of obscurity going around. It's a, a striking yellow orangey spot. Mm-hmm. And, which if i were to put that in, in music which i do not dare to do because it's uh, not worth it but if i did i would have this very dark stomping background and some lead guitar on the extreme um, mm-hmm. of the spectrum just slashing through you know because right. that's how i would envisage the music that the colors being represented
1: right so you're also a painter. Does it help you creatively with your fiction to maybe paint some scenes or characters? Is that something you do?
0: Yeah. I haven't done it for Doomsword. Uh, I've done it for other things. I've done done paintings for a story that would be really more books. This is my man cave. Hey. Uh, oh,
1: yeah. Is that yours? Yeah. That is excellent. That's pretty fucking great. <laughs> yeah.
0: Just, uh... <laughs> I also uh, learned from, um, from Frazetta. I never heard of pe- painting on, like, masonite, you know, like, so, like, you take a broken shelf.
1: And, wow. Man, that is that is next level. You're <laughs> on my mind right now.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I didn't even, I, I used to do a lot of pencil drawings, and um, I only picked oils up as a kind of a self-therapy, father died about a couple of years ago. Uh, painting helped a lot for that, you know? So that's when I uh, started dabbling with the old colors. Uh, before that, I was more into... Like, for example, I have a... Um, um, this is actually Frank. Oh, yeah, it? I could tell. Yeah,
1: that's...
0: And uh, I was... When doing... you call
1: that dabbling, I would call that a mas- mastery.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But then I turned it into, uh, a little more kind of what he would then used for a, a subject because he was using himself as a reference up too yeah. much yeah he was never using models um but but at the same time he he never ever moved without his camera millions and millions i'm sure at some point he didn't even all this taking pictures of stuff became yeah it's um i, I think it helps a lot to uh be a well-rounded artist staff doesn't matter how good you are right watching myself as uh as anything not a not a guitarist not a singer not a songwriter not a painter but in the end when you put them all together i think the atmosphere comes through and then people start liking it yeah and they perceive that there is some kind of substance to your music you know? right that goes beyond
1: it's funny we're talking about frazetta i don't know if you um we had sarah on his granddaughter and how much we revere his work. He had almost zero reverence for his own work. She said, you know, he would drink coffee and have stains on his paintings and kind of, you know, lick his thumb and do a smudge." And it's just, <laughs> it's weird from the artist's perspective when how we look at their work and how they perceive them.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's funny because I mean, I mean, we can't stop talking about Doomsday and talk about where are we allowed? Because <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: I'm Yeah, I'm sorry, we, we'll, uh, we'll talk about I can, go on,
0: I can go on for hours. <laughs> I love so much he first of all he said he, he admitted he was lazy because like if you take a uh, majority of his paintings further out you go from the center of attention the less. You know? yeah. and fair enough he could do that put it out with class anyone else would look like they were but he would say you know it's just I'm so good <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the in the middle of the painting everything is as it's supposed to be but the rest is just fades out into uh you know i would consider that a a masterpiece and fading out and creating an atmosphere and everything he just went no i'm just uh, (laughs) yeah this is is the reality of how it was and uh, i've heard stories of everything like uh, when you paint with oils especially in those years diluting could only be done with turpentine with the smell you use the collar straight out of the tube it takes days to to dry you know right and he just gobbled these massive amounts of coffee and went to the studio and was a painting in one night or maybe two three nights mm-hmm. and you go how, how 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 do you do that and i've heard every sort of myth story at some some point some of them i know they they talked about his kids and put in uh, <laughs> yeah or <laughs> yep. or um, uh I've, actually i've read a lot of i've got two of the three main books icon and testament i missing legacy because i can't find it but uh um I read for example he said um i was always in such a rush to finish a painting yeah but hand it to the person who commissioned it to me and i was still wet like i would say don't touch it <laughs> <It's still wet. laughs> yeah. and uh, the person you know imagines big building in new york he would he would say to the, to the person, just put it out the window, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a couple of days, <laughs> it would be dry. And um, he, he said that sometimes he painted out on the corners of, uh, of a building and like maybe some pigeon has shattered it and <laughs> clean, clean the, the stuff off. Like, uh, all sorts of incredible stuff. Only Can you
1: imagine a pigeon shitting on your Frazetta?
0: I don't. <laughs> <laughs> die. I mean, I don't give any credit to my paintings and I would have a hard time coping with the pigeon shit. (laughs) Can you imagine?
1: No, I I would kill that bird.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. First of all, (laughs) uh, but see the pigeons are not salty.
1: (laughs) So I'm almost ashamed to admit that I, I was not able to get, uh, I was trying to get my hands on the swords of steel, uh, Collection that your short appeared in before we chatted, but I wasn't. I was able to read the excerpt, and I just want to know, uh, ask you: Is that a standalone tale? Do you have many works set within uh, the Signar Vort? I don't. Uh,
0: standalone uh, is uh, so. I, I have. I have a concept, and the the story that that got included is like um in the end is like a section of what I wanted to publish. But you know, I wanted to keep itself contained because i wasn't sure it was ever it was ever going anywhere but i have a general world and a general concept around that what i like to do is as far as possible always base things in science and um, i like the idea of the many wording so all i do is i ask myself what if things had, turn, had taken a different turn in history what i do is also and by the way magic was has to be it has to be low fun. It hasn't. It can't be the dominating element, but it can be uh, so powerful that it reshapes the entire universe. So even though maybe one single magic episode occurred, caused massive change to a parallel timeline. Right. Our, so the the story itself is one of these words. I have an unpublished novel that is based in the very early Middle Ages, basically at the moment when the uh, Langobards uh, Germanic tribe invaded Italy and that's because I grew up literally a few minutes away from a world heritage site that is a, uh, a Roman fortress and that became the Lombard center of importance. I was always fascinated by these Germanic tribes invading Italy so I thought to myself what if church was defeated in the very early days and the Germanic tribes actually took over? how would the, how would history develop from there? instead of um, yeah. the way it did, which was basically Byzantine uh, control and the Germanic coming over. would be quite trying, different. Trying to, yeah, exactly. <laughs> trying to dominate, but really, when you look at it, uh, the, the barbarians actually did win um, in that they uh, controlled everything. I mean, France is called France because of the Franks, which were right. a big tribe. And uh, I don't know, the place I the Langobards, you know, and uh, so the, the the cultural influence is uh, undeniable however in time they sort of you know romanized and became less attached to their roots and beliefs and mostly you kind of can attribute that to the fact the church retained their power and said look you convert we'll become friends basically all you need to do is to keep convert and that and that is um that is a great strategy that worked with the vikings as well if you can't beat them that's that that that's how the church resolved all the problems the, the world we know has a certain shape but my novel is uh flipping that on its itself that goes to convert the germanic tribes that were settled in the area where i was born and grew up and instead of him operating a conversion he goes through an ordeal that sort of mirrors that of Odin, and he actually acquires the runes like Odin. And from that, he, everything, everything he knows goes to shit. And um, he starts going, maybe things are not like they are, I believed they were. And um, since he becomes known for certain powers, you know, yourself in the, in the olden times, a story reputation would have the power your actual so then the relationship between kingdom completely changes is
1: that a completed novel nearly uh have you been are you in uh is that in works with dmr or is that just something you're doing by yourself nah,
0: just just fucking got up on day did
1: got you got you well and, uh, we're already on medieval history uh My personal favorite uh, Doom Sword album, Let the Battle Commence, a concept album about the great heathen army, the Scandinavian invasion of England. Uh, What was it about the particular period that kind of drew you in to make that album?
0: I liked, you could say there's a similar theme to the novel. I liked the defiance that the Vikings brought to a very sort of settled world uh, of Christianity. And on top of that, I had read this novel called The Hammer and the Cross. Can't you remember? But anyway, alternative history that um, pictured different Indian to the, uh, to the battle that the Great brought against the Vikings to the instead that invaded England. Uh, it just made me more interested in that particular episode. So I started investigating myself, found that um, official history is that the Vikings found nearly no opposition in York when they conquered it and then you know i i like to I, I, I like to challenge these beliefs because you really you know history is written by the victor right. so you never know what really happened you only know what those who won want you to believe and um, i thought to myself i don't think that's how it went but it doesn't fit the picture of the <laughs> of the of the viking of the great heathen army invading uh England then um you know seems like uh in the end if you look at look at history it's a little more than a than a dinner and everything was resolved. Uh whereas the Norse sagas have you know gruesome stuff like the blood eagle. Mm-hmm. Um ancient. Um and so I thought, you know, I, I think I'd I'd give a go at picturing how it really went. That's how that battle. Um yeah, pretty much. And um at the time I mean, even now I still consider Battery to be one of my favorite bands ever. Um, but one of these famous combinations we were talking about at the beginning, definitely Arbo and uh, Battery, Blood, Bloodfire Death, that pinnacle of everything north. So I really, really want Arbo to be under of Doomsday. And I found these two paintings, the one on the Horn and the one on Let Battle Commence, depicting King Akon. I decided I was going to use them. Results pretty coherent. Great choice.
1: I know we're kind of jumping all around here. I, I'm looking behind you. I just I forgot to ask you what your favorite Frazetta paintings
0: were. Not so much into electing favorites, but um, *Tree of Death*. Do you know *Tree of Death*?
1: Uh, not off the top of my head. I don't. Actually, I need,
0: There's. I've uh, uh, got a calendar here. Where where are you where are you looking? On oh, the
1: uh, what you have in your hand. I thought I saw a sound uh the painting
0: sound oh yeah 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 that sound yes. yeah fear death is this guy gotcha okay yeah, yeah. uh and then obviously like uh, all the all the conans uh conan the destroyer um silver warrior which by the way i also love the album heart attack amazing one of the one of the few bands that were <laughs> lucky enough to have a frasetta uh, painting for their cover and also um, I, I actually you know In team with the the derailing that we're doing, which anyway, when it comes to Frazetta, I enjoy very much. Listening to Sarah Frazetta talking about Frazetta's opinion of other artists. (laughs) She mentioned that uh, he praised Norman Rockwell. True. um, I have Frazetta's, what Frazetta defined as, who did Frazetta define as the greatest living painter? Have you ever heard of Jeffrey Catherine Jones?
1: I'm not familiar.
0: I'm going to pick out something here. I'll pick out something here, because he's uh, like, he's just I an mean, easy, he, she, because he he had a, a gender change operation. Uh, so like um, playing very much with, uh, you know, shadows, the way Rosetta was a blackout, all parts of paintings, you know? Yeah, so his, uh, his style, in a, in a way, he was a little more, fine art oriented but you can also see how um they had a lot of uh, similarities in the
1: oh yeah yeah definitely you
0: couldn't you couldn't even tell whether that's Rosetta or Jones unless you uh...
1: I would have guessed Rosetta if you would have asked me exactly you know
2: she was pretty uh she was pretty prevalent in DC comics in the 70s wasn't she I think I remember seeing a couple of her reprints
0: yeah that's right she she was just incredible I mean as I said, she ventured a lot more in fine art uh, art uh, than Frazetta did. You have to give credit to Frazetta. He stuck the massive cannons of not wanting to sell out into, I don't know, fucking landscape painting. Yeah. There we go. He just went, out. Oh, for me, it's weapons. Yes, Very- I,
1: I was trying to convey that to Sarah without sounding like a complete idiot. That I just thought that her grandfather is on a Picasso level, but he's doing Conan and swords and you know all these uh these women and he would never really quote unquote sold out if that's how you want to put it he just stuck to it. it's really cool
0: correct correct <laughs> that, that was um that was one of the things that contributed to him defining fantasy mm. even elevating the genre up until then it was something for comics and teenage boys I don't know um but then the artistic value of it became and the other thing is, I do understand people have fascination for Frazetta's forms and the way he was able to paint anatomy without even a model there. He was a true genius. I mean, he, were, he was already stunning art teachers age eight. But one of the qualities that is never praised enough is the fact that Frazetta was a true designer in that he had shapes for his painting. Like he, he, he knew how to organize the content of the painting in a way that was always uh, looking good. Like if I tried the same thing, I put two warriors fighting each other. I just will not put them in the same position and in the same light that he, he would. Right. And so therefore I can paint the same level of anatomy or even better. Him, and I still don't achieve his final result because he's a genius. <laughs> i just trying my hand at it. <laughs> uh, like for example, his, um, many of his paintings are, I would call triangular. So they have this conical shape you know if you look at uh, death dealer you can clearly see how the the arms define the triangle and then this other arm is one side and the mantle defines the other side and it's almost perfectly triangular if you start then looking at all the other paintings like that uh, you'll see that many of of these paintings are literally triangles very rarely actually centered more like skewed like this and and it's he, he just knew how to perform in such a way that your eye was mesmerized. Uh, so yeah, it's, right. that's and that's really what can you do? Nobody can teach you that. That's the distinction between being a genius and someone that's, you know, put some cost. Sometimes you're just born with it. <laughs> oh yeah. I agree. But he definitely was. I mean, mm. the story of him uh, going to this art school because he looked to be good. And um, there was this uh, Italian guy called. Uh, Michael Falanga, and the first time he was there, he uh, was given a picture of it to everybody in the class. They were all, all all ages. I mean, there's old people in it. And Frazetta started doing his talk, and the guy, being in I mean, this guy had no English. He was actually Italian-Italian. Uh, <laughs> took Frazetta's little sketch and went, Mamma mia! And ran away <laughs> to show it to, I don't know who. <laughs> And then tried to organize for Frazetta to go to Italy to study art. And um, I'm glad he did not. I mean, even as an Italian, I think they would have stamped out his wild sort of talent. And he might have turned an amazing Caravaggio painter, but we would not have.
1: Yeah, You don't want to rain in a wildfire. You want to let it blaze.
0: (laughs) Exactly. 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 Very, very happy that for the not
1: obviously you're influenced by a lot of uh moorcock and robert howard what are your, some of your, your favorite howard and moorcock stories
0: um my favorite moorcock story would be the vanishing tower i just love that in fact addition i have here the vanishing tower is actually special because it's come um michael william's sketch is amazing have you ever seen that i haven't stuff doesn't translate in the podcast but in the end we're just chatting
1: right? yeah exactly who cares
0: By the way, this, this is my Elric, that I, it's, I don't know, it took me 20 years to to do an Elric. (laughs) Because Michael Whelan did it, so I just went, let's just not go there. (laughs) (laughs) And in the end, uh, I'm going to show you something now. The, what I believe was an original idea for that famous forever you were talking about. Yeah. And this, this is, this is 90s, you know. For uh, for Elric. Howard, the Conan stuff. My favorite would be um, *People Back Circle* and um, *The Hour of the Dragon*. The more kind of uh, I, I love the um, in the chronology of stories. I love the early stuff. I think that in time, though, the kind of combination of uh, uh, Conan in the ruins with some supernatural menace and a uh, uh, damsel in distress sort of gets old. Uh, to the mm-hmm. point, where an iron
1: Okay. I've always been a fan of the Solomon Kane stories and the uh Lovecraftian horror stories that Howard produced more so, not more so than Conan, but like I'm I'm with you. I like Conan, but some of the stuff is a bit repetitive.
0: Yeah, because because that's where he got his money from, Weird Tales. So yeah. was making the a great living off him. And, and um but then instead the, the the later in life, uh Tales of Conan uh starting with um, well, certainly when the first story, which was the uh, rewriting of, by the Zaxxar rule, uh, that then became the Phoenix on the Sword. Yep. Um, that's a great story, but you can, you can, you can sense, you can feel the background to it, you know? Right. And then, Yarrow the Dragon, when Conan is like, uh, this middle-aged king, he's gone through a million adventures, he's done with pirating, he's done with thieving, He's now a conqueror. That's where you wanted him to go all along. It's great to have seen what he did as a wild barbarian, but now stuff gets epic. So that's the part of Conan that I really love. So the Hour of the Dragon, the Scarlet Citadel, which is sort of, I think was like the short story version. And even there's that story, what's it called? Wolves Beyond the Border, which is set during the time when Conan was King of Aquilonia. So the very, very late phase of his life, but doesn't have Conan in it. And it's set in the Pictish wilderness. That was great. Um, I, I loved the uh, Bram McMoore stuff and called Solomon Cain, I love it too. Uh, unfortunately, it's, you know, it kind of escaped me until later in life. Right. A few things. Uh, don't know him as well. Um, but it's definitely on my, uh, on my to-do list because I right. can't. Uh, and it's great that I have some unread Howard there. That's so a good I'm, thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm leaving it for a good moment, you know? Yeah. Um, but if you were to ask me as well beyond those two, I would definitely say that uh, uh, Paul Anderson's Broken Sword is a major, major um, influence and a definite. F- and it, it got published the same year in 1954, so the same year as Fellowship of
1: I'm not familiar with Paul Anderson's work too much myself.
0: Well, he, he was a great author, and Moorcock himself. You go on uh, you know, Google what Moorcock has to say about Paul Anderson. It's, it's amazing. He just basically says, Tolkien had balls, then he'd be Paul Anderson. <laughs> that's, a, that's a statement <laughs> there. <laughs> but, yeah, because, I mean, the difference is in the tragedy, you know? The sheer dramatic tone of the entire story, but that, that there's no happy ending in some uh, shire, you know, right? It's complete another tragedy started, it's relentless. And like Tolkien, which is the element that really connects Anderson and Tolkien together, he fishes out of uh, mythology and lore, but the two approaches are opposite. Tolkien sort of tries to dress mythology and lore in his own created world. So this kind of Tolkien where elves speak something that sounds a little bit like Welsh and a little bit like Irish. Um, Whereas Anderson makes no excuses, goes straight to the mythology itself, fishes the characters out of it, and puts them in the story. And then puts like Norse mythology uh, gods in with, uh, Celtic gods and and um, there's everything you can think of. I mean from epic battles to incest. And um, it's it's just I don't know. The Broken Sword is something if you haven't read it, you, you'd be happy to know that in in it's very short as a novel. So you you'd be savoring one of the best fantasy books of all times in, in a few hours and you didn't even know it was there. It's <laughs> so it's um, so that that that's that's from one big one, and because I like to kind of go and find the origin, I found that Paul Anderson himself was in turn influenced by this other guy called H R H Ryder, Haggard, who published Eric Eye. and it's like a pastiche uh, Norse sagas, but the story itself again amazing, and it, yet again super. T- um, so maybe I have a thing for tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> everything that has a note of tragedy to it speaks to me in more terms that's personal
2: and you know you mentioned all of that and in, in the fact that so many of those authors back then were picking through you know through history and they were they were creating these large worlds you know that seems something that um it seems a lot of modern authors just they just it's like they try to abandon the past and it's fine that they try to create their own little worlds but kind uh, of it feels like some of them would find some more original ideas just by picking from the past and taking situations from the past instead of i fantasy just doesn't interest me like the old like the older authors do they they created these huge vast worlds over so many novels and modern fantasy seems kind of almost like it's just tropes put into the same situations over and over again
0: i, I couldn't agree more uh no look it feels a bit it feels a bit a bit like a stereotype or a commonplace banal thing to say that you know the olden days when things were better. But at the same time, I was discussing with a few people. I said, look, I um I know this story of a guy that has white hair and is nicknamed the Grey Wolf, the White Wolf, and needs potion to acquire powers. Mm. He's really, really freaking good with the sword and um yeah pretty much he has a thing for the, as you can imagine everyone everyone the witcher and yeah no that's 1961 <laughs> the white wolf <laughs> it's Eldrick. <laughs> i don't know how you go and live your lives without knowing this but knowing that you know okay fine it's got netflix exposure and whatever but if you claim to be a uh, in any way interested in fantasy and you know you you, you don't know that I, i'm not saying the witcher is plagiarism at what point does homage become plagiarism? i mean okay the plot is identical but it's also not different <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's it's weird and uh, even like in the story i publish i think that uh, i read some of the stuff influenced me I think subconsciously some of it crept through and so maybe you know I I find myself going well this is really original and how much was my subconscious just coming through um but um, I think for as long as there is a a good dose of humility knowing that willingly or unwillingly it's difficult that you will invent something from scratch complete scratch then maybe you can just give it a honest go and hope works out, you know? mm-hmm. uh, Same way with Doomsword. I, 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 especially when we started, I just thought Warlord and Candlest mixed together and, and Warlord, you know, Sami thought his rainbow with a bit of rush. <laughs> it's the fact that we have such a different perception of the world that what we think is imitation turns out to be something individual. Mm-hmm. You know? So we escape the plagiarism accusation Play well, very narrow
1: margin. <laughs> you know what's interesting about the The Witcher situation is uh, his name is escaping right now. But the the author of The Witcher was in charge of translating Moorcock's work to Polish, and that's that's very interesting.
2: <laughs> when you look, when you kind of think about it, though, you know, yeah, I mean, the characters are almost identical, in like, I mean, in a lot of ways. And I can't pronounce. I couldn't pronounce the the, the author's name, and then like and, Andre.
1: I can't say the last name. I'm sorry. Yeah,
2: I can. But you know, he took the character and he applied a lot of Polish folklore and some some historical. And so, he, in a, in a way, he he did bring to the he did bring to a to a wider audience those stories and tells and that type of culture from Poland that. I, for one, as an American, wasn't exposed to. So in some sense, it, it, maybe the genesis of it was a little bit of plagiarism, but enough of it was infused of his own experiences. So, I mean, is that what...
0: But you I know something? I actually, I actually think... Uh, I haven't read uh, the material. I only watched the series, and I have to say it's one of the things I get the most. So it didn't bother me too much. Uh, I think that was really what was silly especially know enough from Justin that the guy who was involved in translating workah is that he he slapped on some details that are, bring absolutely nothing to the story Um like the white hair and being called the white wolf Keep him green hair <laughs> God. just yeah, it'd be an it'd be an easy know, you know it, it's it's just unnecessary <laughs> Um but, um, yeah, I, I don't want to take anything
1: yeah. from the you. So, since you're the primary songwriter and lyricist, is it a chicken versus egg situation? Do you start with one, then end up with the other? Or do you mix it up?
0: I rarely start with lyrics. I mostly start... Song Resound the Horn on Odin Sale, on Resound the Horn, was my idea of what the cover of the painting, the color painting of love Fire, Death which is a very famous painting called Asgard's Ryan by Arbo, uh, would look like a music. Uh, uh, I have other such examples. I put in the first uh, album, I even put some of the paintings in the booklet. So oh, the, cool. the... I think here. Yeah. Uh, uh, you've seen the fake letter edition of the CD. Yes. So, well, published in, uh, originally. Uh, so obviously the... Uh, Fuseli, Thor fighting the uh, bigger serpent, and then we got this is um, Paolo Cello, a medieval Italian painter. Um, yeah, so that uh, there's a few there. Um, this is uh, this is a detail from the Bloodfire Death Cover. Um, yeah, so visual arts very very important for uh, for inspiration. Um, and then uh, literature uh, inspires me, not in history, because I really, really am in uh, a history, especially medieval, but also Roman, um, up until basically late Middle Ages, then I can uh, um, Our last album, The Eternal Battle, was inspired by a movie, a movie, um, movie that I, is actually only available in Italian. Uh, yeah, send you the Link, it's called Il mestiere delle Armi. Which depicts the um, uh, history of uh, of an Italian leader fighting uh, German descent um, and uh, gets shot in the leg by a very early version of a cannon. Mm-hmm. and um, uh, Then goes through a excruci- excruciating kind of death through sepsis, you know, dis amputations. <laughs> but it, it was um, it was an incredible um, movie because it was, uh, it's very artistic. It's, it really represents this concept that I had in mind for the eternal battle, which is sort of internal struggle that never goes away, you know, where, where you basically always, you're, you're never at peace, you know. And if you are at peace, that's a bad thing. Never, nothing's going to come out of of you, especially if you're an artist. Like um, yeah. Peace means you're done. Uh, and, um, yeah. So hence the, the, the name, The Eternal Battle. So yeah, in order will be images, then, um, gotcha. then at times I might. And there's also uh, three or four lyrics. My brother, for example, is a bit of a visionary. So he has these crazy images. Um, he wrote the lyrics for Thunder Cult on My Name. Love and that song. And um, The Fulminant on uh, The Eternal Battle. Mm. Cool.
1: didn't even know that so in a short amount of time Keep It True has kind of become a legendary event um, showcasing all those metal bands what's been your personal experience at the festival?
0: Well the Keep It True for Doomsert is super and um, I think with without any false modesty Doomsert was also a little bit special for Keep It True. Um, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, first of all we were the first official officially confirmed band for the first lineup of Keeper. Yep. Um and um it's funny because then Ollie was telling me, you know, hey, there's other bands, bands like um Omen, and Selma <laughs> 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 what <laughs> so I'm gonna come, am gonna do my gig and jump off the stage as soon as possible because I just wanted to see Brocksell right? Omen playing. You know? Um and also because uh, it first Keep It True, I mean, it was really, truly magical. It was something aside from the 38th heatwave there. Um, it, was, um, it was like forces convening in the hall. Uh, it was like metal had found its new home. Yeah. And um, we, we did this gig. I don't know, but technically, would I even be satisfied with it? I, I don't know. I don't think so. But the energy was incredible. And it was just sweat and I couldn't stop from jumping around something. I'm not really kind of a jumper around kind of stage frontman, more of a headbanger guy. Um, but it was amazing. And um and in the end, when, when we got off the stage, people were asking for an encore, like for us to go back on stage for minutes. <laughs> uh, it was uh, it was never ending, it was kind of getting embarrassed. Um uh, that actually got embarrassed in one gig and another band, which I won't name for respect, um, but at the end of the uh, headliner, he was telling me name. we were the support man. <laughs> uh, so that was a bit embarrassed. Um, but uh, yeah, the Keep It True Experience, the first one was unrepeatable, is the word first time, and it was, I think, it's always been a thing to travel to festivals, but I think Keep It True 2003 was really the first time when people started coming from all over, you know? Right. Mm, and they they were seeing this thing coming through bands coming back from obscurity, uh, from the 80s, reforming to go and play uh, to the German crowd, which is the, the largest in terms of numbers and uh, definitely one of the more knowledgeable Um and like Greece, for example, is another extremely special. You have to go play in Germany, you have to go to Greece. But at the same time, Greece is a lot less accessible most. It's a fair few hours. Right. Um, whereas Keep It True is kind of nearly geographically in the center of Europe. We drove um, from our place because it was mm-hmm. only six hours driving, so pretty much. Not too bad. If you t- took out the Alps, it would have been three hours. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> we had to go over. Um and um and then there was uh, the second time we played which was also quite special because we do a couple of songs singer and the, the Doom out album, their first album. Um so that that you know people appreciated that very much. And I got to play guitar for a little while, which had to do it. And um, and then the third time was um wasn't as Doom Third personal. Uh, participation as a guest for Mark Shelton tribute, right? Which was uh, intense. Uh, I mean, from all, oh, from an emotional point of view, was uh, can it cannot really be described because Mark was uh, a friend, but above all, he was like this beacon of light of proper uh, moral metal ethics. You know, the doing art for the sake of it, right? doing it uncompromisingly, the never getting a big head even though you're a fucking legend who's been around for 40 years and and you still go around i mean i always tell this story when first time very first doomsday gig was 14 manila road and we arrived to the place and um mark shelton was we we, we were checking out the, the venue and manila road were there already. and i got in and um Mark Sheldon looks at me and goes, "That master, what an honor to me!
1: Wow, <laughs> what the fuck? How did you not pass out?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and they "I think you got things mixed up here. Uh, <laughs> the honor is absolutely mine, and I'm not worth it." And um, but yeah, he that that was that was Mark. Um, <clears throat> he'd be uh, he, he would be happy to say he was a fan of a band that was formed 20 years after Manila Road were formed and they were heavily influenced by Manila Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, it's still, it's his art would still be pure and just listen to the music and not give a shit about who, what, when. And, you know, he's been of incredible inspiration. I try to apply it. Good but, music
1: is good music. You know, exactly. Regardless of when it was released.
0: Like I wouldn't be too surprised to think some song was inspired by Eternal Champions. But the, the stuff is amazing. Right. It's, just, it's great. Just, it doesn't matter who, when. What What does it matter? You know. It's uh, right. It's just a masterpiece. And and um, so yeah. And and I I got to um, sing songs from Crystal Logic, which uh, and and Open the Gates. Open the Gates is my favorite. Logic, my second favorite um even though i don't i don't really like these yeah chats, especially when in a row i mean I'll, I'll listen to him um and um also, um it was peculiar being there because mark and i had spent an entire night chatting in the backstage of um i don't know at some point i think he must have thought put this guy ever shut up but <laughs> <it> was, <laughs> he just kept going so i thought Maybe he's enjoying it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, and we, had, we truly had a great, yeah, even our first experience. I mean, the, the, the fact itself that Doomsford as a band performs live is entirely down to Gianluca Silvi. Gianluca Silvi is the guitarist in Battle Ram and a great personal friend of Mark Shelton. They became friends when Gianluca, who was in, like fan number one, Mm-hmm. decided to attempt and bring Manila Road to Italy for the first time in their history in uh, 2002. And um, so he got in contact with Manila Road and the entire trip, three, four days in Italy with uh good wine, good food. And, um, and then don't ask me how he found my landline now. <laughs> 2002. And um, he said, um, you know, would you Are interested in playing live shows? And I was like, oh, I don't really want to do that because it's sort of this pure music. Idea of. Even, you know, the pseudonyms were to distract away from the, the fact that there were people playing the music. I just wanted the music to be the music, you know, and people appreciated it. Right. And, um, and then he went, well, you know, I'm <laughs> bringing them on their own. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, they're coming to Italy and I want them to and I went. I'm there. Like, I don't need to ask again. Um, <laughs> I'm coming. <laughs> when isn't? <it? laughs> and that's how we started um, playing live, um, which was a good three years after we. Um, it was actually after we published the War. We did our first. Wow, that's a that's a wow live um, performance. Yeah, and we spent um, we spent a couple of days with. Uh, Mark and Battle Ram, um, and um, we we just hung around. and great fun! Great fun. As good, good food and good wine is involved. It's a lot of fun to be had mm-hmm. uh, And uh, and from there we you know we stayed in touch and we played so many gigs together. I mean, I remember it was even I don't know if it was a coincidence or whatever. We in the course of a year we played like three or four uh, together uh, with with them and with Battle Ram. And you know Gianluca is now the guitarist. So it, it, the bond became so strong and so real over the years that he's now vital
1: part. That's very cool. And it's funny you mentioned that 2003, Keep It True, because uh my primary preparation for this interview was just listening to uh uh the Odin Sale Keep It True performance. And you're just like, now you must bang your fucking head. And that's all I've been listening to for the last few days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh I, I even feel a little bit uncomfortable because I'm, no, I don't not that I have a problem with the with the F word It's just you know I was very very inexperienced as a frontman. Didn't yeah, know
1: it was necessary to say that <laughs> night.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh it was my third gig. Wow as a singer. So um yeah, first gig was money in the road, second gig was doom sort headlining and nothing. Um Oh wait, there was also a, an Austrian festival one week before the Keep It True, which we kind of treated as a rehearsal. Um, yeah, we were supposed to play Amon Amart. Then they didn't turn up. We played them. Uh, we have one. And then there was Keep It True and then the week after the bangers. But
1: yeah, Keep It True. And, uh, Joe, I know I've kept you hostage for almost an hour and a half now. I don't want to keep you here all day.
0: Well, uh, you go ahead. If you have questions, ask away because I just cleared this. Uh, slot, and I am um, on holidays. Okay, cool. Um,
1: so what are some of your favorite films? It's the nature of the podcast that we talk about horror, but if you're not a horror fan, it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> well, movies, um, I, it would be obvious. And, and not and not a concert or knowledgeable, uh, but definitely Excalibur would be, and uh, obviously The Conan. Um, but for many reasons, um, because, first of all, in the beginning, it didn't sit well with me that they, instead of choosing, electing a story to represent in a movie, they sort of did a best of of the scenes of the of the story. Right. But, and it was a great, great choice because there's so much common there that they decided to kind of pick the highlights. Um, and um, to be honest, I mean, the scene where he's crucified and bites the neck of the vulture, yeah. um, which is taken from a witch shall be born. Um, that climbing of the tower, which is the Tower of the Elephant. Um, the only thing I didn't understand, called villain. Right. That's weird. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> we went so far and everything will. Um, but yeah, aside from that, um, then I really loved the 13th War. Oh, that's uh, a great movie. Um, which we took. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen... It's a logo that we definitely use in a uh, consistent in our albums, um, uh, what we call the pensive warrior. It's mm. like a shape of a warrior with the sword kind of pointing downward. Um, that's a frame from the 13 warrior. Oh, wow. okay. cool. It's uh, towards the end will, uh, the chief, whatever his name is, sounds like something like, no, not exactly, but something like uh,
1: that. Bl- the big blonde guy is who you're referring to, right? Correct, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah
0: he's being poisoned and um he's going out with a cloak because he's he's feverish from the poison
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and um he's probably thinking you know i'm fucked yeah (laughs) but you know i'll go out with a bang and um and um you know we we took that frame uh yeah
1: cool yeah yeah i can definitely see it now now that you said that
0: so that's what we call the pensive warrior, because I think that actually represents dooms or how we stand for, which is not in any way glorifying war um, or violence, but rather show both sides of it. Celebrate those who've been brave, but also celebrate those and remember those who lost and have lost. Um, because, you know, it'd be a fool to say going into battle and killing people uh, that the only consequence of that is you're uh, there's also families that lost their dad right or whatever you know
1: yeah exactly
0: and, um, so yeah so the, that that will be my kind of triumvirate of
1: gotcha that if
0: i if i need a bit of inspiration well, go on and and um <laughs> sometimes some or tongue will come out <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, Joe, do you have anything on the horizon? That be that fiction artwork, any potential Doom Sword coming up soon, next couple years, maybe?
0: I am working on a new album. Uh, I've been. I've I never stopped working. Um, I have this thing where if I don't sort of translate uh, material into a finished uh, finished track or finished album in a relatively short amount of time. Um, I might not like it anymore and that's happened now a good few times so like there's material there on my PC a number of albums uh, it never saw the light of and there is actually a live performance of one in 2013 in Athens we played a song called God of War um, which was a song that we were uh, intending to include in the New album back then, mm-hmm. um, but then time passed. Lineup changes. I mean, lineup changes have plagued Doomsort quite a bit. And um, I, I don't even know how many people played in Doomsort. Something we, we must be nearing 20. Um, but um, yeah, so in in the end, I never stopped working. I keep working. Um, I think this time I feel a little better about the prospect of. Uh, Uh, translating what I have into a finished product. I never say never, though, because I've said it so many times. I've said it about albums. I've said it about lineups. Uh, This is the one. (laughs) This is the one time. And then it never happens. And it's never anyone's fault. It's just, I think, um, it's very important to produce something that is coherent and cohesive. You know, if you can imagine, you know, I've got songs for 2013. They're hardly going to be the same. Right. I heard a lot of bands talking about how they go through evolution um, and how it happens naturally. I, I, I'm listening to that, like well, the guys in the Codex, of that. Um, I would take it up a notch even. I would say happen this kind of change in evolution happens without you. You know, It's yeah. just literally what happens to you in your life, uh, be it a pandemic or becoming a father, losing someone. Um, changes your mind in ways that you cannot comprehend and are not. Um, and what that means is that it's very, very unlikely that your artistic output will remain consistent throughout the, in terms of coherence. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's not a matter of becoming, a, becoming better or worse. That's not for me. Um, it's just a matter of uh, the, the word going on with or without. These people say show must go on. Right. After the show goes on with or without absolutely just up to you to actually want to be part of it or taking a break or um, but even if you decide to take a break it's just assuming a passive role but you, those changes are still occurring and you cannot help it and, and that's just it even right. the fact that really in the end um, our thoughts are chemical processes happening in our brain my neurons now are not my neurons that wouldn't I had in 2013, so I drank so much more beer. So it's <laughs> <Yeah>. chemical reactions are <laughs> the same. So I'm not having the same thoughts, and that's just the same thing. Exactly.
1: That's well said, my friend. Uh, I'm definitely gonna be letting you out of here and cutting you loose. And it's been a lovely chat. I just want to go ahead and tell you, I see you got your Sirath Ungol shirt on. We are gonna be talking to Tim, uh, Mark. Yeah uh jarvis in a couple weeks they're going to be on here so i'm look out for that one and i would definitely well,
0: say hi uh oh. you no know, they definitely remember doing we were the first
1: episode. oh yes i'm i'm sure they <laughs> will remember you
0: <laughs> i don't know but i met i met them uh, right yeah and,
1: and down the road maybe we'll all get together we'll have a roundtable episode and just shoot the shit you know
0: well that would be absolutely i mean i i actually think consider some of the ones that got away yeah because we you know we as doom server like we took our pseudonym in style from Warlord. it's the first um and we played with all sorts of band stuff. and listen thanks a minute it was great very-
1: yeah it, it was great man uh anytime and i'll be in touch and make sure to send me those links and i'll uh i'll send you this as soon as i get it up Cool. all right you have a great day man
2: madness and magic.